up on this week's show, the original Tomb Raider games are back. A Nintendo classic returns better than ever. And we get the story of Obsidian with Matthew Fassburn. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our incredible mates at Bitmap Books. Now, here's a question. Who is your favourite character in Street Fighter Alpha 2? Because that is just one of the games it features in their amazing book, Super Nintendo and Super Famicom, a visual compendium. And reprints are due next month. So you can get a reminder and check out the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our mates at PCBWay. Now, of course you know PCBWay. They offer fully featured custom PCB prototyping with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer services like 3D printing and injection moulding. And you know they're massive supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now on their website at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 397. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that every Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the classic age of video games, brings you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last seven days, and of course brings you a veteran of the industry onto the podcast in the second half for an in-depth interview and more on today's guest in just a bit. But welcome back, Ravi. Sick boy is back. Cheers. Well, uh, thank you guys for covering. That was that was really nice. And uh, yeah, Ashley did such a good job, you know, coming on. It was uh, really fantastic. But um, now you guys are starting to get along. <laughs> I, I can hear it a bit in your voice, Dan. And I know Joe's been out for the count for quite a while as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, Ravi's definitely got a better immune system than me because you got over it a lot quicker than me. I'm like, two weeks into this but uh, oh geez yeah it's been a slow burn for me it hit you like a bus but it hit me like a maybe like more like a pedal I... <laughs> so it's been, it's been a slow one for me but i'm here powering through but yeah man glad you're feeling better avi we missed you yeah and you know yeah. what i felt a bit weird i'm like oh my god i haven't been on the podcast i've got to, i've got to get some like retro game chatting on well, uh, it's nice to have you back. Obviously, Ravi's now completed the man flu. Joe's on about level seven. Yeah. I think I'm at level one by the sounds <laughs> of my throat today. So, uh, yeah, everyone's come down with it recently. But, you know, we're getting into that time of year. This is our last show of September. And about a month from now, it'll be dark at four o'clock in the afternoon. Digging out the horror games for Halloween, all of that to come. And our big episode 400 coming up in a couple of weeks as well. So uh, more on that as we get ready for the 400th episode celebrations. But today, we have got an amazing guest. Now, we're going to be covering the story of a game called Obsidian. And uh, when I mentioned this to you, Ravi, you're very excited about this. You're a big fan of this game back in the day. Yeah, so, uh, you know, many people may not know this game as it was quite underrated but um you know it's it's of that great period where you came from cd-rom and you went into like fmv games and there was a you know a lot of kind of integration of fmv and it came from um rocket science games and rocket science games you know they did lodestar on the uh, sega cd and a lot of the kind of graphics and stuff were all rendered with uh silicon graphics machines you know they had these beautiful sequences in there but Lodestar was more of a kind of, you know, kind of play along as you go movie, whereas uh, Obsidian was a whole world. And it it does remind me of Myst mm. uh, quite a lot, but a lot more complicated. There's a, there's a lot more elements of, uh, you know, FMV in there and it's, and it's a bit more developed. 
And uh, yeah, today's guest is uh, all about this kind of era and the whole FMV era. It's a really interesting chat. Yeah, so we're going to be joined by Matthew Fassberg. He's our guest this week, and um, he was a, the project lead on Obsidian. And you're right, I mean, that came around a couple of years after Mist. but um, from all the reviews I've seen of this game, everyone thinks it's really underrated, and it really should be regarded, you know, as a classic, that kind of, you know, cult-like status that Mist has got. A lot of people reckon it's a much better game. And um, it recently got re-released, actually, a couple of weeks ago, so it's a very good time to get Matthew on to give us a story of it. And uh, also to hear about rocket science games as well because i remember them being a pretty big player for a few years i mean they're only around from i think it was 93 to around 97 yeah they, they did a, the cadillacs and dinosaurs the second cataclysm as well and yeah. uh, rocket jockey wing nuts uh, also strangely they had elon musk work in there as well so there's yeah there's quite a few you know uh i think david fox was as well there's quite a few you know uh huge people in the video game industry that were working there and they, they really did sit on that kind of, like a seesaw really between the, the Hollywood side of the business, because a lot of people had a movie background that worked there, and the gaming side of it as well, which was a big balancing act, you know, trying to balance it between the people that want to make really playable video games and the ones that just wanted really flashy FMV graphics as well, and um, had a bit of a sad end as well. So we do hear all the story of that really short-lived company, but definitely left a big impact. Rocket Science Games, we hear about Elon Musk working there as well, and uh, the cult classic Obsidian and its rebirth for 2023 with this week's special guest, Matthew Fassberg. He's coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, before that, first half of the podcast, we like to do little roundtable chats about what's been happening in retro from over the last seven days, and uh, plenty to catch up on this week. It's been a busy week as we gear up towards Christmas. I think, you know, a lot of big releases are going to be out over the next couple of months, including uh, something that's actually bizarrely going to miss the Christmas market, <laughs> which uh, feels like a bit of a missed opportunity. But the uh, first three Tomb Raider games are going to be back on modern consoles with what looks like a really nice, if quite subtle, upgrade. I oh, really nice. Ooh, I'll come back to that in a minute. <laughs> ah, okay, Joe, we might have a differing opinion we, on this We may one. have differing opinions, but yeah, this was announced uh, about a week ago. Funny enough, it's part of the Nintendo Direct, but it is going to be on all main consoles. And like you say, it's not coming out until February 14th, 2024. Um, mm. And, you know, let me get this straight before I start kind of, not bad-mouthing it, but before I kind of give my opinion on it. I probably will buy it. You know, it's Tomb Raider, isn't it, at yeah. the end of the day? And I've got a lot of love for Tomb Raider 2 and... Tomb Raider 3, funny enough, was the first uh, pirated game I ever had. Uh, interesting. You need to buy this and you owe the so developers I owe them. some money I now. owe the developers. Yeah. But, I mean, I was going to ask, what do you guys think of the art style? Because it, it reminds me of the final Tomb Raider games before it got rebooted. Um, um, I, I like it. Uh, you know, I've always felt uh, Tomb Raider 1, you know, that, that came out on DOS. Um, yeah back in the days and also on the Saturn yeah. and you know it was it was clunky it was it was kind of tough to play I remember certain areas and levels I wasn't able to find like the ledgers and areas to get into um the camera angles were pretty horrible at some points and you know I've seen lots of people replaying it on Twitch and stuff and I've had a little replay myself on the PC version which uh, is a bit better because you can do some changes on there but I think this is much needed and I kind of like that they've kept the kind of textures a bit warpy yeah. and, uh, mm. and, a, and a bit kind of of that traditional vibe. This is, I think it's definitely a game that needed a remaster. 
Um, the original is still great, but um, just for new players to kind of experience it. Yeah, well, this is Tomb Raider 1, 2 and 3 remastered, um, which is interesting because this comes from Crystal Dynamics, who actually did that Tomb Raider anniversary reboot, like remaster, back in like 2007, I think mm. it was originally on the PC, and then it came out on Xbox 360, PS2, PS3 as well. Some people have speculated that this is basically that, just kind of upgraded, but actually it looks quite different. Um, I think graphically, I mean, as Ravi said there, this doesn't look like a full, you know, modern remaster with like all shiny new graphics. Really, it looks like quite a subtle change, like more smoothing out those original polygon graphics. Um, obviously, they're upscaled into you know, 1080p, at least, I'd imagine. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, it would kind of ruin the vibe of the original games, I think, if it went full-on kind of, you know, AAA standard graphics for modern consoles. But what you can do with this, kind of like, you know, the, the Monkey Island remakes, is there is a button where you can look at like, kind of the, the modern improved graphics, or you can go back to the original polygon graphics of, the, you know, the first oh, few nice. games, like PlayStation 1 style as well. I, nice. I always thought even Tomb Raider 2 was a step too far. I was like, that's too modern. Tomb Raider, the original. <laughs> that's, that's Tomb kind Raider of my 1 jam. is the cutoff for Retro. Yeah. For Rabbit. <laughs> that's it. But you got the butler in Tomb Raider, too, when yeah, everyone's locking him in the modern fridge, butler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, that is one thing I'm quite interested to see because, I mean, there is a trailer that you can watch on YouTube. It's uh, 34 seconds long. Not a lot of detail about the gameplay, but I'm I'm thinking from what I've read, most people think this is going to be kind of as the original games were with those old school tank controls as well. Yeah. Because some people have pointed out in the comments that, you know, some people are like, well, I hope they've improved it and it's a modern control scheme. But they are right that when they did that 2007 remaster, they had to change some of the puzzles in the game because they wouldn't work with different controls. And I wonder if some of the moves that she does, um, you know, like two or three, they improved on some of the acrobatics and like the moves she could do, if they're going to implement them into Tomb Raider 1, like kind of, Sonic Mania. Uh, yeah, that's well, interesting. Well, well, well spin, spin Dash style, not Sonic Mania. I know. Sonic Jam, yeah. that was yeah. the one. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. I, did, I didn't think of that. I, I did, it crossed my mind about the tank controls and kind of modernizing them and stuff like that, but I didn't think how much that would affect the puzzles in the game. Because, you know, when like Resident Evil games have been re released and remastered and stuff like that, you know, they've, they've put options in there, like on the Resident Evil 1 and 0 remastered it in like 2015 they made it so you could turn the tank controls off. You could f- flick between the tank controls and modern controls. Um, yeah. But but obviously Resident Evil doesn't have any platforming in it. So that didn't really cross my mind. But now you've mentioned it. Yeah, it, it might actually change the gameplay significantly. And uh, some of the uh, vehicles were so hard to drive as well. Well, yeah, there is that <laughs> as well. Um, but I, I do like, just reflecting back on what you both said, I, I do like the textures and you've kind of sold it to me now. I was a little bit like, hmm. I mean, like I say, I was going to buy it, but you've actually sold the graphical enhancement to me because with the textures, I didn't really think about that. And you know what? I was just rewatching the trailer now and it it, it, it really does, you know, when they turn the smooth, the, the better graphics on, the HD graphics on, it really emphasises how many square platforms there was in like ancient Japan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think it's that, you know, it's a roast into spectacles, isn't it? You often imagine these games look better. I mean, in my mind, looking at this remastered version, that is how the PlayStation 1 version looked until I see the PlayStation 1 graphics again. I'm like, oh yeah, it was actually try, quite Try janky. the Saturn version, you know. It's- yeah, well, I've got the, yeah, I've got the Saturn version as well. Um, but I, I mean, I'm hoping they leave some of the glitches in there. Like, you know, it wouldn't be Tomb Raider 2 if the butler didn't kind of glitch through the fridge door 
you know, the stuff like yeah. that that I hope they kind of leave in there because they should have just done that. Yeah. I, everybody would have bought it. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think I think the puzzle solving if they've if they've got the puzzle solving as as well as they did before, and and if it's as tricky to do, then uh, that's going to keep me engrossed. Yeah, and I mean, I've been meaning to play the original Tomb Raider games again for a while, so I think this will be a, a nice way to do it. Yeah, definitely. And um, so, yeah, they're going to be, hopefully, I haven't no word on pricing yet, but I imagine there probably won't be that much, you know. Usually when you get these kind of trilogy packs, you pay the price of one game for three. Yeah. So I'm hoping and, it's and, uh, and also, I, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, it's always with Tomb Raider. They haven't gone crazy on the um, on the assets, as as they say. You know, usually with later Tomb Raider games, they, they went a bit mad. And um, yeah, she seems uh, proportioned um, sensibly. Yeah, we know what you're talking about, Randy. Yeah. Very subtle, very <laughs> subtle. So uh, yeah, it looks really good, actually. No word on if there's going to be a physical release of this. I think that would be quite cool. I mean, it would make sense if it's going to be kind of a, you know, a collector's edition. That would be quite nice to have a physical. Um, but at the moment, it looks like it's only going to be digital downloads. But of course, we'll keep an eye on that, and I'll put that trailer in our show notes as well. Now, speaking of games that are getting a uh, a rebirth, as it were. This one is just really an expansion pack for a classic game that was a little bit controversial back in the day. Um, I've had different pronunciations of this. I've always called it the Great Gianna Sisters, but I know some people call it the Gianna Sisters. I don't know which side of the fence you guys fall on. Gianna. I'm not sure. <laughs> Maybe Gianna. I always say Gianna. Gianna. Well, I say always. I've, I've probably spoken about it twice in my life, but yeah, <laughs> Gianna Sisters. <laughs> Well, of course, uh, famously, this was a uh, basically a Super Mario ripoff that came out on home computers back in 1987, very briefly, before it got pulled off the shelves. And obviously, if you get hold of an original version of that game, it goes for crazy amounts of money these days. I remember when we had Chris Hulsbeck on the show, he kind of told us a story of uh, the fact that it, there wasn't a Nintendo lawsuit, which seems to be the kind of common consensus. It was more Nintendo sent like a threatening letter or a cease and desist. Yeah. So I don't think it actually got to the stage where it went to court. No, you don't mess with Nintendo, though. When you get yeah. that letter, you're like, okay. Yeah, more than enough to uh, frighten anyone to take a game off a shelf. But obviously there has been several new games of the Gianna Sisters slash Gianna Sisters over the years. I remember there's one on their Kickstarter a few years ago that was uh, quite good from memory that came out on modern consoles. I remember there was even one on the Ouya I've got a feeling. So there have been some kind of official ones, one on the uh, the 2DS as well, I believe. But now um, this looks like a great new pack of levels for the Commodore 64. And this is called the Gianna Power Edition because I didn't actually realise this. There was a Gianna Sisters construction kit. Oh, cool. Like, like, like Mario Maker or something. Oh, nothing like Mario, Ravi. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I thought uh, you were being serious. Like, oh, sorry. Like that. No, but I know what you mean now. I got the joke. Yeah, it took yeah. me a minute. <laughs> You're not well, Joe. We'll let you off. Um, but yeah, I mean, this looks really cool. So basically, this is a collection of some uh, fan levels. There are 16 of them that have been made with the construction set, uh, the new power edition of this, and you can download this for free and uh, play these new levels on your classic Commodore 64. And I've got to say, looking through the, um, I haven't played them yet, but I'm looking through this, um, there's like a, a six minute YouTube playthrough uh, video that you can watch. And there is, um, you know, the levels look really well designed, actually. I'm not sure whether there is some, um, some new sprites in here as well, whether they're part of the construction kit. I mean, I haven't played the original game for a long time, um, but it looks like there are some like new enemies in here. And that's my mind. It's, it's always good to see one of these older titles, you know, updated and getting some extra levels. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a kind of game where, like Mario, um, basically, you know, you make a new level and it feels like a new game, doesn't it? You know, um, so it does make a big difference. So it's nice to have these uh, to play on your Commodore 64 and that is available to download for free right now. So I'll put that in our show notes as well. 
Now, something else is waiting for me this weekend on my Nintendo Switch because uh, Nintendo put this up on the uh, the Nintendo Switch Online Play, if you have that, if you pay uh, for Nintendo Switch Online annually, as I do. And this is F-Zero 99. Basically, the, the classic SNES racer now has a massive online multiplayer mode. I, I mean, I'm pleased to see. I'm pleased to see this. Like I've I've played Pac-Man '99 and Tetris '99 briefly because mm. I've only ever had Nintendo Online for like a month when I did it for free when I first got my Switch. I think I might have done it twice. I did it when I first got my Switch, and then a few years later they sent me another trial thing, so I did it. Um, as you guys know, I don't play my Switch very often, but yeah, this this is this is really cool to see because we haven't had an F Zero game in 20 years. That was the last time wow. Nintendo put an F Zero game out. Uh, which was F Zero F Zero GX. Um, I could be wrong. There might have been a Game Boy Advance one slightly after that, but I know there hasn't been like a mainline title. You know, F Zero's just not been getting any love other than Captain Falcon being in the uh, Smash Bros. games. You know, consistently. Um, I think you know when Mario Kart came along, it's kind of like Nintendo put all the focus on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we did get an F Zero game on you know obviously on the SNES, which is this what this one's based on, and then on the N64 and then on the GameCube and then that was it. Nothing for the Wii, Wii U or Switch until now. Uh, but yeah, by the looks of things, uh, very similar to Tetris 99 and, you know, Pac-Man 99. It, it looks um, Mode 7 still. It's like they've kind yeah. of replicated the the Mode 7 vibe. But um, the thing I love about this is it's, it's free, which is great. And yeah, yeah 90... If you pay for the service. Yeah, yeah 99 players. Um which is insane. I don't know if you guys have ever played like a game with that many people on one map at the same time. There, there was this, uh, I think it was, it's like Descenders or something, but it's this, it's this biking one where you go down a hill and I think we used to have 30 people on that and that's absolute mental chaos. Like <laughs> 99 on a small track like this, it's just going to be mad. It is, it is pretty mad. I mean, there's some kind of like, you know, uh, some power-ups they've put in there um, which creates like a ghost track above the track. So it kind of like separates some of the players. So I guess that kind of helps with how messy it is. Um, the congestion. Yeah. yeah, with the congestion with the traffic. Yeah, can you imagine that? <laughs> playing F-Zero, but we're stuck in traffic. Um, yeah, bloody traffic jam. Been here often. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it plays the same as, well, the difference between this and the Pac-Man and Tetris 99s is, as Ravi's just said, you're all on one map. It's not like mm. Pac-Man 99 where you're all playing your own game of Pac-Man or your own game of Tetris. And then as it gets harder, as people lose, they get eliminated. This is all on one track on one map. And obviously you're all just smashing into each other, getting killed off. And then every time you do a lap, it knocks, I think like five players off. So it's like when it first Mm. starts, the bottom five players of those 99 will be eliminated. So, which to me sounds like, oh yeah, I'd smash that. I'd be in the top 20 every time, but you know what? I, 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 I said that when I played Pac-Man 99 and I wasn't. <laughs> so uh, Rage quit after that. Yeah, it would yeah. just be so much fun just seeing someone like just crash or fall off the map and like, what the, what's that guy doing as yeah. you're going around, you know? Yeah, yeah. But like you say, Ravi, they've, they've captured the Super Nintendo graphics of this. So it's based on the original graphic style and, you know, it looks like that Mode 7, but it just looks it just looks beautiful. Like, yeah. you yeah. know, the pix- it's like pixel perfect. I've been watching some of the gameplay because, like I said, I've not played it. But watching the gameplay doesn't appear to be any slowdown or anything like that either, which is really nice. Yeah, and all the reviews I've seen, people are loving it. Yeah. Um, and I, I've downloaded it on my Switch this afternoon, so I look forward to giving it a try this weekend. And uh, probably coming at 99th 
out of 99 players know my gameplay skills. <laughs> so uh, not doubt in the first round, but yeah, it looks loads of fun if you are a Nintendo Switch online subscriber that is available for download now. Now, some uh, exciting news for Spectrum fans, because um, someone has actually made a nice little replacement here for the uh, the micro drive. Now, <laughs> I know that whenever the micro drive is mentioned to Sinclair fans, there's generally one reaction that is a, a bit of a shudder. Are you familiar with micro drives, Ravi? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not that much of a specky guy. You know, I had a few friends that had Spectrums, but uh, didn't have that much experience. I think I've seen a few a few micro drives around, though. We had Nigel Searle on the podcast, didn't we, a few years ago, um, who worked alongside Clive Sinclair. And I remember him telling us the story about the the ill-fated Sinclair QL, um, of which, for some reason, I've got two Sinclair QLs in my collection. Um, no Spectrum, but I have the, got two the, QLs. The Quantum Leap. Yeah, that was it, yeah, which uh, wasn't much of a Quantum Leap, despite that advert with Sir Clive jumping over all the other machines. Um, but basically, the micro drive was, it was a halfway house between cassette tape and floppy disk. So basically it was a much cheaper alternative to a floppy drive, you know, because obviously whenever they could save a penny or two, that would generally be the Sinclair way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they bundled these. It was basically a loop of tape. So you put these um, small little wafers, I think they were called, or just cartridges, basically a cartridge with a loop of tape in there that you'd insert into a very small drive. I mean, they're only about the size of, maybe a bit bigger than a full-size SD card. Okay. Quite small. Um, very delicate, though. That's the thing about them. And I mean, I've got a few um, micro drive cartridges for my Sinclair QL, most of which have kind of got bits of them kind of falling off now or the, the tape doesn't work too well. So that was a big problem that they weren't very reliable. And obviously putting that into uh, a system like the QL that was aimed at the business market, that was a death knell for it. You know, no business was going to trust their data on a micro so this drive. was for even, saving data on then. It, yeah, it wasn't saving it wasn't, and loading as well. Oh, and loading. So would you get games released on the micro drive? Yeah, there, there was software available on it, and that's the thing. I mean, <laughs> looking through my Sinclair QL manual, it came with four programs included, like a word processor, a database, a spreadsheet was in there as well. Um, but actually, it says the first thing you should do before you even attempt to use them is make a backup and don't use the originals. <laughs> you know, because they're that delicate. So um, it wasn't, you know, a very popular storage medium. It wasn't no built really to last, basically. No, exactly. Um, but actually, a guy called Derek Fountain has made a modern microdrive emulator that basically uses SD cards instead of the microdrive. Now, the only problem is, usually, because, I mean, there have been a few of these over the years, but what you generally needed to use these on a Spectrum is an interface called a ZX Interface 1. Okay. That gives the Spectrum serial and network and, you know, expansion ports that it doesn't have. Um, but they're becoming hard to find, those original models. So basically, Derek's decision is to make an emulator that is completely standalone. So this has got everything you need in there, and it plugs directly into the, the Spectrum expansion port, and, of course, they're using the power of the Raspberry Pi. It and in fact, like this uses three Raspberry Pis <laughs> in there. Yeah. Three Raspberry Pi Picos inside here. So basically, it emulates the ZX interface one. Um, it's got the ROM of that on there as well. And then the interface, it goes by the Spectrum's bus. And then the, the final one emulates a microdrive, essentially, and lets the user, you know, communicate with the SD card. Um, so it looks like, you know, a really tidy solution that I imagine is not going to be all that expensive to make. Because, I mean, I've seen recently, I was reading a, a copy of a Linux format magazine, which... Um, now, I still buy paper mags, like to support them. And they were saying in the latest issue that, you know, there is now a massive influx of um, Raspberry Pis again into the market now. Okay, that's good, so they, yeah, because they're being used for absolutely everything now. 
Yeah, and obviously we had that big component shortage during COVID and stuff a couple of years ago, but it looks like that's finally getting sorted out now. So they are becoming more readily available and hopefully at reasonable prices. Because I did buy a uh, a Raspberry Pi 3B for a Pi Storm on the Amiga um, when mine broke about a year ago. Um, I think I had to pay about 70 quid for it, which was nuts. Because, you know, I paid like 20 originally a couple of years back. So uh, now that these are becoming more available again, I think this looks like a really nice solution because uh, that's the thing. I mean, if, you, if you've got software on micro drives that you want to back up or basically, I mean, it is quicker than a, using a cassette tape. So it, it would work like a GoTech or something. You just select, yeah, you, you select the image, load it up, and then it thinks yeah. it's a micro drive. Yeah. So, I mean, he's put it all up on GitHub as well. You know, it's all open source. So if you want to check it out, and there is a great little uh, YouTube video as well, um, giving like a really detailed review and a teardown of it too. Um, so I'll link that up in our show notes as well. But yeah, it looks really cool if you're a Spectrum fan and uh, want your games to load a bit quicker than off cassette tape uh, and your micro drive replacement available now. Now, um, you guys were getting excited about F099. I'm more excited about this. Alien versus Predator on the Atari Jaguar is now playable with up to 32 people on multiplayer. <laughs> they are missing a trick by not calling it AVP32. Um, but yeah. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this, is, this is awesome. This is based on the original Jaguar version, uh, not the PC or, you know, kind of like later Xbox 360 versions or anything like that. But it's, it's my understanding, you guys have just clarified this to me before we started recording, that this isn't on the original hardware. This is through emulation and kind of like networking, isn't it? Well, it's, it's this emulator that we've talked about before, the big PMU, or big yeah. PEMU, I'm still not sure how you pronounce this, by uh, Rich Whitehouse, who we seem to cover this, God, every like two or three months at the yeah. moment. Um, an emulator that's only been around, I believe it came out back in 2021, mm-hmm. so still pretty new. And obviously, there's been some big introductions, big features in there recently. We covered the Atari Jaguar um, CD support, uh, the VR compatibility that we mentioned a while ago as well. Um, there's also the uh, the Jaglink, which was the Atari Jaguar network solution, um, was introduced in version 1.08 of the Big PMU. But there is a, a new version of it that literally just came out about 10 days ago at the time of recording this, version 109, that now brings basically two new methods to network Atari Jaguar games. Now, one is called State Sync, and the other one is Script Mode. And what he's done is, I mean, basically there is a, it looks like a bit of a hack of the original game because the original Alien vs. Predator is just a a single-player game. Mm. There wasn't actually any multiplayer play in there at all. Um, Even though, looking at the short demo that Rich has uploaded onto Twitter, or X, if you want to call it that, um, it looks like it makes a really good deathmatch style game so the script mode actually looks like it kind of you implement your netcode in there and it enables games to be online supported so basically using this script mode in here is essentially added 32 person multiplayer support to alien versus predator and i i just say it wouldn't be called uh alien versus predator 32 it'd be 64 joe do the math yeah, oh, do the yeah, math. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh no i think this is really cool because it's a it's a game that never had that option in there it never had that yeah. multiplayer option and the the idea of taking a, a kind of single player title and then adding in more players online i think that's pretty awesome but he's he's gonna struggle to find 32 players i guess um but maybe they'll be like you know, Atari Age or like a JAG community would all get together at one time and then uh, test this out. That needs to happen because I think this sounds like so much fun. I mean, he said he, has, he hasn't he has tested over 30 yet in a single game. 
but he, he's done a little demo here of like a two-player split screen, but he reckons theoretically there could be 32 players in there. He said, uh, expect bugs, because obviously this is quite a new feature that he's put in here as well. But really, I mean, the exciting news about this is with the, the Big P MU version 109, um, it basically means that there is network multiplayer for any two-to-eight player Atari Jaguar game. So it enables online support. Atari Karts, Stan. You're going to go yeah, mad on go. that. Yeah, yeah. Atari Karts 99, that's what we need. <laughs> we should do it for a Christmas video. <laughs> Us all playing yeah. this online. Yeah, um, you know, it's in, but, it's interesting because it's like, like you say, this was never designed for multiplayer. So it's weird to think like how the kind of like the game would react to it, if that makes sense. Because mm. there isn't like a deathmatch mode for 32 people to go on. So I guess it would just be the standard campaign with like 32 of you just like, you know, when one alien comes after you, you know, which is usually quite a tough game, all of a sudden it's like 32 colonial <laughs> yeah. marines and shotguns. I guess, I guess as long up. as you've got the map as well. And if there is some kind of editor for the maps, maybe he could start creating multiplayer yeah. maps that would, yeah. uh, you know, accommodate people more. But I think it's always cool when you get emulators that kind of open up what were previously like just, you know, couch co-op games online as well because i mean i love playing you know some of the like amiga games like chaos engine and stuff on there so it's like antstream yeah i can play it with my brother who lives or three amiga lives really Kasuma good for Ninja. that as well is it Kasuma yeah, Ninja? Kasuma, yeah. <laughs> a bit of that, bit of that online. Yeah, the, the awful mortal Kombat uh, <laughs> ripoff on the atari jaguar so uh i think it's gonna be the next big thing joe so um i love this emulator as well i mean it just seems like rich is working so hard on this and uh kind of going above and beyond as well because it feels like it's already pretty damn good but now that he's introducing stuff like vr support and jagglink as well um definitely sounds like he's given this a lot of love so that new version is available now if you want to test that out and uh, we'd love to hear if anyone manages to get a 32 player alien versus predator match going please do give us an invite of course uh, there is all our details on our website to get in touch Right, then we're going to be joined by this week's special guest talking about Obsidian with Matthew Fassberg. He's coming up in just a moment. And uh, now that we are almost into October, that does mean we're getting close to another patrons hangout, which, of course, is always a highlight of the month. We just had one last weekend that was really good. Um, chatting about all kinds of things like we always do in there. A Red Dwarf. There was quite a lot of Red Dwarf chat. <laughs> There was sci-fi shows. I mean, this is basically, if you haven't joined us on one of the Hangouts before, it's when we invite all our patrons to come on on a, basically a giant Zoom call. And we normally do it on the last Sunday of the month. So uh, if you get in there now, you'll get invited to October's. And uh, we do it two hours on a Sunday evening. I'll have a couple of drinks, just geek out about all things retro, share a bit of advice, show off our retro pickups as well. Basically like a massive users group. It was a lot of fun to do. So if you want to join this month's Hangout, now would be a very good time to uh, join our patron community. And we're getting ready to record the next episode of the second podcast that we do the retro hour just, after hours that's the thing some people think we just do 51 episodes of this a year there's another 12 episodes of the second podcast as well yeah yeah we do every, and, every, and, and that yeah. one's often longer than our our supposed hour <laughs> yeah so yeah i mean some of them are like yeah god we do we wang on for like two hours and some of those um but the latest one is covering uh, our favorite licensed games as well so the after hours uh Really, really varied show, and we're getting ready to record the new episode of that for October in the next week. So a very good time to join us on Patreon, and of course the reason you're doing it really is to make sure that we can continue bringing you this podcast every single Friday. Helps us pay for all our costs, server costs, audio costs, equipment, everything like that is covered thanks to our wonderful patrons community. And we do have two new members to induct into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, and that is of course the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And I'll let you guys induct the latest members. Hall of Fame. <laughs> Who have we got, Ravi? Peter Clark. And Richard. 
Thank you so much for your support, guys. It really means a lot to us. And if you'd like to join the patrons community, all the details to sign up right now are on the website, theretrohour.com. Right, then we'll have more news for you on next Friday's show. But next, we're going to get the story of Obsidian and uh, lots more as well. Rocket Science Games, working with Elon Musk on video games back in the day with our special guest, Matthew Fassberg. He's coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And we can't wait to get some stories about a really interesting, albeit short-lived company that were around in the 90s. It was a really interesting mixture of Hollywood and the video games industry, and we're responsible for some really innovative games, including, obviously, the legendary Obsidian that we'll be talking about very soon. So let's welcome on this week's very special guest, Matthew Fassberg. How's it going, Matthew? Going very well. I just... Got some exercise, swam some laps. I'm energetic and excited to talk about Obsidian. Oh, well, I, I appreciate the preparation there. Sounds like you're, uh, you're pumped up to go. Yeah. <laughs> well, brilliant. Well, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Now, before we get into kind of, you know, your career, and um, obviously we'll go into Obsidian that's uh, been released again on modern platforms and people can play that again and maybe missed out back in the day. I'm always interested to kind of find out with our guests where their journey began. I mean, do you remember what initially got you interested in computers and gaming? I mean, where did your journey start from? Okay. I need to be clear on this. I wasn't that interested in video games when I got the job. Basically, what happened was, uh, but I got interested. Uh, I was working in uh, film and video for many years, and I had had a lot of. I, I am let's. I would call myself a, a generalist. So I had been a post production supervisor. I had been an editor. I had done sound design. I got into editing uh, on an Avid system, which was the first computer based uh, nonlinear editing tool that came out. Uh, I had worked for photographers. I, I had really done a lot of different things. And I connected with a friend from college when we both got our first email addresses in early 1993. And we're like, and both of us had done a lot of this. And we were like, what are we going to do? Because we're not specialists, we're generalists. And three weeks later, he calls me back and goes, Matt, I live in the Bay Area. There's something called multimedia. It's exploding. And they need people that understand all aspects of uh, creating media and, and audio and sound. And uh, he was right. And I got in touch with uh, a headhunter. And and Rocket Science was just starting. And uh, they were both getting ready. They were just developing the company and they were raising a fair amount of money and they needed to make promotional material and videos explained who they were. And I flew out for an interview and they said, listen, join us and we'll immediately use your video and film skills to make media for us. And over the time that we're, we're ramping this up, uh, you'll get a chance to learn about computer animation and producing it and how it works and play some video games. I had not played, I did not grow up playing video games at all. And I was, I can't remember how old at the time, but, but you know, I got into it. So I moved out and I helped them make videos and promotional material. And then, uh, the guys on the so rocket sciences uh thing was we're a mixture of hollywood and silicon valley and mm. uh the animators that they had just started uh who were experts and it just worked on star wars and films like that started teaching me about how this works how it works to design animation in 3d and the different programs you could use i was already using photoshop 
but programs like After Effects were just coming out and really launching. And so it became, there was a time when, uh, when I was helping them making their, their promotional and, and business materials. And I was learning how to produce. And, uh, the first game we worked on was Lodestar. Were people kind of confident in a FMV at the time and, or was it seen as like just a kind of plaything for uh, people to practice on or, or train up? Here's how I can explain it. Uh, coming from where I was coming from, I think they thought that full motion video was the only style of game that allowed them to take advantage of the uh, Hollywood, beautiful imagery, uh, well-designed and well-executed. I think they thought they needed to use FMV to showcase that uh, because they were working with you know art directors and people that, that worked on films. And I think they thought the, the, the FMV method or, or game style would allow them to showcase that. Of course, you know, once you reduce it to what platform are you on and how quick can the data move through it and how quickly do you want to move through the world versus see the world, then it became more of a negotiation of how quickly do we move through the world and what does it look like? And that was part of the process that we had to navigate as we were developing the games. And do you think like, you know, the association of having like Lucasfilm games and, uh, you know, big companies involved in gaming uh, help give it some credential and, uh, you know, get more people involved? Well, we got, you know, look, we were on the third, we, Wired Magazine had just come out and we were the third cover of Wired Magazine. There, there was an article and we, we were featured and certainly the association at, in those years with Lucas was fantastic. I mean, but we all know how you throw up a name, someone who's famous or a company that's famous and whose credentials are, and it makes people interested. So yeah, it definitely helped. And the people we had on the engineering side, you know, the people that came from the engineering side, uh, Bruce Leake, our head engineer, had developed QuickTime. One of the guys that ran the company, uh, Peter Barrett, had uh, come up at the age of 18, I believe, with Cinepak, which was the first video compression software that existed, and it went at all the macromedia software. And, and so there were kind of rock stars in the company on both sides of the equation, and it helped us get a lot of attention. Absolutely. And I imagine then as well, obviously, with the, you know, the, the birth of full motion video, it kind of coincided with you know, CD-ROM becoming like a new established mainstream medium as well around 93, 94. And you mentioned that um, first game that you worked on there, the uh, Lodestar, The Legend of Tully Bodin. That also came out on the um, the Sega Mega CD as well. So, I mean, what memories have you got of working on that project? And what did you think of the, the Sega Mega CD as a platform? Well, first of all, I mean, I should say this. We're going back way far. Uh, mm. So as far as me judging the platform, I look at now... I look at that platform in the context of the years that went by and how many platforms came about. And so I don't really have a judgment about that particular platform. I just remember during the whole cycle of the company, different platforms were coming out and it became an issue uh, because unlike film or the, or the mu or making music at the end of it, you're, you end up with a file. And whether you take or, or some imagery and whether you put it on VHS or DVD or put it on film and project it, it's the same stuff. Same with music, MP3, 8-track, cassette, CD. 
it's the same music. But you get into making something that's interactive, like a game, and when you go to a different format, uh, the engineers have to get involved and re-figure out how you're going to present it, and each platform has technical and engineering issues you have to solve. So I just recall over the over the years of the company trying to figure out what platform we should focus on. Obviously, we had the deal with Sega, so we focused on that platform, but it became an issue in general of like, oh, now people want to put games on PCs and then the Macs were there too. So we had those two things. And I just recall it becoming an issue in general, not not specifically for rocket science, but in general, like what platform is each company going to make the games for? And can yeah, they- I mean, around then you had so many different ones. I mean, CDI, you know, 3DO came along briefly, Atari Jaguar. And yeah, there's so many different ones on the market every six months back then. Yeah. And it was, it became an issue. Like what, I mean, it, we couldn't make it an issue because we had been funded by Sega. So of course we veered towards their platforms, but uh, in the industry in general, it was like, oh, are we focused on the right platform? And did a better platform just come out and now nobody's focused on on, on Sega? So uh, um, among the things we had to navigate, uh, some of it was internal to the company uh, and, and teams were together, but some of it was external, like are we on the right platform and did that change over time? So looking back, I don't really have a, a judgment around that particular platform. It's more like the subject of platforms became an issue in general. What about working on Lodestar then? What, what memories have you got of that, that first game? Well, that was the f- game that brought about, that, that showed to me the issues that started to become the issue for rocket science in general, which is we've got two sides of the company. First of all, as producer, your job is to make, whether it's departments, engineering, artists, designers, work together. And the two main sides were the people engineering the game and making it work and the people making the art for the game and not just pieces of art, but the video. And what you had was a little bit of a battle of how complicated and interesting should this game to be from, from a gameplay side and how good should this game look from the Hollywood side. And basically I was immediately thrown into a, uh, a little ongoing nego- negotiation where our game designers, Brian Moriarty and David Fox, who had deep history in designing games, uh, were saying, hey, you're, you're making us oversimplify the game design because of the quality and resolution of the visuals you're trying to show. And we need to, we, you keep scaling it down, but we believe that our game players would play a very, simple looking game if it was very interestingly designed they're not going to care they're going to want to like the interactivity meanwhile the hollywood side if i can call it that the ilm side was going wait the whole mission of the company is to have these games look fantastic that's our that's our calling card and so we went back and forth and i think the game that eventually got released the version was for many game players, too simple, but it looked fantastic. So when it got released, uh, the game designer is like, really, guys, you've made a, che- a checkers game and people want to play a chess game. The Hollywood side of the company, if I can call it that, was going, 
but it looks fantastic. And we've hired, we've hired real actors and we shot this with a crew and all the, all the ships we designed look fantastic and their texture mapped to look very cool. And so I just recall it being a battle uh, or a negotiation to try and keep both sides happy. And I think, because I don't think the game did that well, I think the Hollywood side sort of won out in the equation and the game designers were somewhat disappointed with the, uh, the simplicity of the game they were asked to deliver in those cases. And, and that must have been tough for them as well, because, uh, you know, Brian Moriarty and uh, David Fox as well, some of the best games designers in the world and having something that's kind of like an interactive movie, it must have been hard to get that balance. But eventually, you know, with, with the format, it worked out. I, I can imagine these things happen in the in the early days of formats. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, you know, we just went on to the next round and started other games. But, uh, you know, I got to say a problem with rocket science or a challenge would have been how much attention they got for this Hollywood meets Silicon Valley equation and and the being on cover of Wired magazine. You know, sometimes look people look for things to fall when they're overhyped. So I think there were a lot of eyes on rocket science going, you guys really going to do this? Because you really have been blowing your horn pretty darn loud. So when the games came out and they didn't meet the, uh, the quality level on the game side that, that had been promised, I think a lot, a lot of people were like rolling their eyes going, all right, these guys did not think this through. And it became, it became an issue. And speaking of people that worked on Lodestar, am I correct in thinking that Elon Musk was involved in that game. You know what? I don't think he was, uh, uh, he wasn't particularly involved in that game. I think he, I know he was there because it always comes up. Hey, Elon Musk worked at rocket science. I think he was engineering, uh, in a more general way. I know that I I can say openly, I don't recall interacting with Elon Musk or knowing him, but keep in mind we had, uh, we had these bays. So we, in, in, in Berkeley, uh, we were on the vanguard of the, no one's going to be in a separate room. We're going to have, which is now the common thing is you have these big rooms where all the engineers and artists are, are just in little cubicles, but they can see each other's machines and walk around. So we had a lot of people in there and, uh, I did not interact with him, but I know for sure he was there working on, uh, engineering for a little while. Yeah, so he's credited on a couple of games there, um, Lodestar, and also um, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, the second Cataclysm. He's credited on that game as a tester as well, it says, on on Moby Games. I know you were involved in, in that title as well. I mean, what was your role on Cadillacs and Dinosaurs? You know, I, I was not the main producer. I uh, We had teams uh, that were on each game, but then we traded artists uh, or, or let our artists be used on other games. So... I probably helped produce certain aspects of that game or art for it. Or I also got involved again on my video side, making uh, video ads for the games that were used to promote it. I did not directly work on developing Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, but also the engineering because it was the same type of rail game where you're just on a track going through a universe that's, you know, nice to look at. They were using a lot of the same engineering, uh, a lot of the same programming and putting in different art uh, because one was Lodestar in outer space and one was Cadillacs and dinosaurs. So, uh, you know, we were very collaborative between teams. 
So I, I can't remember specifically how I worked on Cadillac and Dinosaurs, but there was a lot of interactive work between the teams on all the games. So let's talk about Obsidian. I mean, obviously, if, if people think of the games that you guys made back then, um, that is kind of the standout title. Uh, you know, definitely a, a game that's a definitely got a cult following these days. And as I mentioned, you know, is uh, available to play again on Steam and Zoom platforms. Um, got released a couple of weeks ago. And we'll talk about that in a second as well. But I'm quite interested to hear about the the initial idea for Obsidian. Because uh, I'm right in thinking that was kind of your first, like the, the biggest project that you worked on uh, back then well, well, when you were at the company. Well, yeah, let me, let me see two. I'm going to go into two directions. That one is the idea of doing a game like Obsidian, and then the game specifically. You know, I think uh, Mist came out and became very popular. And I think we looked at it, and because it moved at a slow pace and you were exploring worlds, it became uh, a kind of game where we could really make things look beautiful and do some storytelling. So between making things look fantastic and introducing storytelling to the equation in a deeper way, that really hit the uh, Hollywood side, if I can say, of the rocket science thing. And they thought, oh, this is a kind of game where we really can take advantage of the kind of quality of storytelling and artwork that, that we really wanted to show that we could do. So they were attracted to that. And then there were a couple of artists in the company, uh, a guy named Mark Sullivan and Rich Cohn, who had worked on uh, film effects and film visuals and were super talented. They went off and on their spare time designed a bunch of characters and uh, some scenes and worlds and made this painting, which it, which is ended up being on the cover, I believe, of, of the uh, it, it was the cover of, of the Obsidian game box. Uh, and it became what the obsidian thing was with this rock, this thing that evolved in, in the wilderness. They came up with that and they said, hey, guys, we, we want to pitch a game. So we had a meeting uh, again in one of our big bays and they showed the work, which we were the, the we, people looking were blown away. And then they explained the game. And when they explained the game, these guys were not gamers. I mean, they played Doom like the rest of us uh, when, when we could on, uh, on the Silicon Valley, on, on the Silicon gaming machines, you know, they played games with us, but they weren't super gamers and their game idea wasn't nearly as strong as their artwork was. And so in the room at the time when they made this pitch was uh, a guy named Adam Wolf, who had just graduated from Harvard. He was pretty young and was just helping out in general around the company in many different ways. And he found me after the meeting and said, Matthew, I can make that into a game. I, I, I can come up with a game idea for that. And uh, I'd like an opportunity to do that. And I was open to that. I mean, Adam was super smart and I knew we needed to go in a more interesting game direction. And so we also had at the company a guy named Scott Kim who designs puzzles, visual puzzles and word puzzles. Uh, he already had a book out at the time of, of writing of words that you could turn upside down and it said the same word or said another word. I mean, he's very evolved in his puzzle world. And then we also, I knew someone named Howard Kushner who had done some screenwriting in Hollywood. And we thought, God, between Adam and Scott and Howard, we've got uh, some cooks that could cook up a nice game design, which they did. And so we went in that direction. 
and that became sort of the team that that evolved the game. And uh, I think Rocket Science thought this is the kind of game that can really showcase what we're capable of doing. One of the issues was how late in the both financial spending direction of the company and how much bad press we had gotten for releasing some games in which the gameplay was not that admired. So we really had a challenge to hit something straight out of the ballpark, which I think we did. If you look at the reviews and you look at the game, we did it ha- hit it out of the ballpark. But I'm not sure at that time we still got the promotion and advertising uh, push that we would have gotten earlier in the company's cycle because I think people might have been growing a little bit cynical about the potential for rocket science to release fantastic games. It um, really kind of changed the interactivity. So, um, you know, Mist when that originally came out, it was yeah. it was quite like a slideshow. There were interactive elements in there, but this one you had a, you know, a huge FMV, amazing rendered sequences. There must've been a lot of people working on it. I know it was, around five CDs yes. <laughs> big, which was uh, quite a lot of uh, detail. Yes, and and we uh, worked with Thomas Dolby and his team at a company called Headspace at the time. Thomas Dolby is one of those people that's always on the, much like Todd Rundgren, both of them focus on uh, cutting-edge technology in music and interactivity. And Thomas and, his, and that brought us some attention as well because Thomas Dolby was, you know, still is, but at the time was pretty hot. And uh, so that brought more attention to the company as well. And both, and we were working with a company called Empath in in the engineering side. So we were really trying to go in some interesting directions about how we made the game happen and and the attention it would get. You know, kind of bringing it back to Mist when when that game came out, it was very well praised. But I often found a lot of the puzzles in there were a little bit cryptic, and obviously when you're playtesting something and designing a game, I imagine there is that fine balance between designing a puzzle that needs, you know, logical thinking and creativity, but keeping them fair and making sure that players are going to be able to figure them out. I mean, what was that kind of balancing process like of designing them? Well, there was a lot of back and forth. I mean, we did a lot of uh, testing. We had people come in, you know, we had a room in the company uh, where people could come in and we had a big mirrored wall where it looked like they were looking in a mirror, but on the other side we could watch and we could record it. And we did a number of uh, tests where we had people come in and just play a chunk of the game and see how they liked it. And it was it was a challenge, an interesting challenge, to dial in, make this hard enough that it's interesting, but make it solvable enough that people can move ahead through the game. So there was a lot of playtesting that we did. Um, of course, we had our own testing group that was just making sure the game worked. But we made sure that people came in fresh uh, who had never played the game, didn't know anything about it, and tried out the puzzles. And there was several times we did that and trying to dial in exactly where can we hit the right spot there. Do you think these uh, FMV titles were kind of aimed at an all-round audience rather than just a, a strict hardcore gamer audience? I'm trying to think of the gamer audience at that time. I think it was really growing. I mean, we are, I'm not saying there weren't, there were already some, you know, maybe Amiga was out or there were, there were some systems that people were already playing, but it was exploding. And I think they were trying to both appeal to the gamers 
that already existed, but also reach out to people that maybe didn't think of themselves as gamers, but were more interested in story or actors or, or beautiful looking, you know, scenes. And so I think they were trying to sort of, you know, bring new people in and still appeal to, uh, to existing gamers, uh, you know, and I think Mist was a pretty original type of title. I'm not sure there were, there were other games like that before it. So even with that, they were exploring a new direction that gamers hadn't done before that. So, they, you know, by the time Obsidian was developed and came out, I think they were trying to move beyond strictly existing gamers and reach a broader appeal. What about the um, the story and kind of the world building of the game? Because, I mean, um, it, you know, it was a very big title. Five CD-ROMs was, you know, huge for a game back then. It was very in-depth. How did that kind of world building and the story come together? Well, you know, a, a lot of that was uh, Howard Kushner and Adam working together. Uh, you know, uh, if you look now, I mean, it seems, you know, our two main characters were a woman and a black man, which which seems very ahead of the curve in terms of now – a lot of companies, even in their hiring, are trying to like be more broad in who they appeal to and who, who gets featured in things. So we were just trying to go in in mm. new directions while still have an interesting story that that appealed to everybody. And you know, again, we probably did some testing on that, finding out what appealed to people, having people come in and hear the story and see a little bit of video and see if it appealed to them. So. Having a screenwriter there who was making sure we had an interesting story and a puzzle maker. We had Scott Kim, who's just focusing on the puzzles, uh, and Adam, who's trying to combine all elements together. I think just the combination of those three people and what they brought to the table uh, really made sure we hit a lot of different points. Uh, games engines were really important. So, uh, you know, point and click games, they use the scum engine. Uh, well, Obsidian was one of the first companies to use the Entropolis engine. And uh, that allowed like interactive, you know, multimedia storytelling. And what what was the advantages then of using this engine and kind of having a bit of a standardization about the process? Well, I think what they promised to do was uh, make an engineering platform that uh, that could be ported to different platforms pretty easily. First of all, this is from memory. But as I recall, their selling point was if you use this to develop the game, you can pl- you can you can maybe port it to different platforms. We didn't end up doing that, but I think their sales point might have been uh, there's a bird that you can uh, you can port it to different platforms, and so that's what appealed to, to us. And we worked tightly with them to make it work, and that also uh, got an I think Thomas Dolby's company Headspace also wanted to move into an interactive, uh, becoming more involved in interactive uh, audio development. And I think it appealed to them as well that we were using that platform uh, because it was easier for them to work within than other other engineering platforms that they would have had to learn. So I think we saw a lot of promise in it. And, I th- and obviously we released the game in it, so it worked out. I don't think in the end that company survived or, or went on to do that much more. And it had a really distinctive visual style as well. I mean, that combination of realistic graphics and that kind of surreal imagery as well. So how did it work kind of collaborating with the artists and also obviously the audio composers as well to bring the game's atmosphere and mood to life? 
Well, you know, first of all, we took a lot of time. Let me say this. We didn't do this game quickly. This game took a lot of time to develop. And I recall uh, Thomas Dolby and his team coming into our office a fair amount and seeing what we were doing. We just made sure there was a lot of back and forth. I mean, that is actually the job of a producer is make sure that all the elements and teams on any project are in touch and collaborating and hearing each other. And so uh, not specifically me, but I'm sure I made an effort to make sure, hey, is everybody talking and are we meeting enough to make sure that the interactivity and the way the engineer is working and and the interactivity of the music, which was very important to Thomas, uh, was just all paid attention to so that there was, it felt like we were all pushing in the same direction, unlike the earlier titles where there had been, I mean, we are, we always were, but there was a little bit more friction between, hey, are we focusing on the gameplay or are we focusing on the artwork as what we want to feature here? In, in this particular title, we were all working together to make it all work as well as possible. With the kind of, you know, CGI and the interactive scenes, they must have needed some big gear and, uh, you know, big equipment. What kind of stuff were they using? Well, you know, I, I mean, we were using, God, I'm thinking the name of the company, Silicon Graphics. Yeah, yeah. SGI. Yeah, we were using SGI machines and also, but rendering now, I, you might know this, but you can just rent a render farm. You could upload your frames and your scenes, and you can use a thousand machines in Germany that's cranking away on your files and then dropping them. I think we started using some render farms, but uh, uh, but we were using SGI machines and just trying to figure out how to render. I mean, these sometimes a frame, a single frame, could take 15 minutes to render. And the video, you know, let's say it's 24, 30 frames a second, that can add up to hours and weeks of time. So uh, we learned, you know, we, we built a render farm. And then I believe we started finding places online that would actually allow us to render and download the files. Uh, I know now that's very common. I'm trying to think where in the cycle of that developing Obsidian was. But it was a main challenge. But it was really exciting what the cap- what the machines we're capable of doing. I guess I should point out that I came from a video background where you would go into a room that you rented for like $700 an hour and you would turn on different machines to make visual effects happen and you were charged by the machine. That's 300 bucks an hour. That's 200 bucks an hour. And then I got to uh, rocket science. And as we moved into developing Obsidian, you had software like After Effects where you could do it on your Macintosh. And I was completely blown away having come from the video world that now you could do very complicated effects and designs right on your computer right there. And uh, it was exciting to be doing that, uh, to engineer on Silicon gaming machine, uh, on the SGIs and using Macintoshes to develop the artwork was at the time pretty cutting edge. Yeah, it's crazy to think, you know, the price of those SGI machines as well. I mean, you know, your, your iPhone's got more power than one of those these days. It's like, oh, it's insane kind of how far we've come. Yes, and it was and it was expensive. I mean, you're mm-hmm. pointing that out. Yeah, we spent a lot of money on machines, and and uh, it was exciting to be using that, that level of technology, which now, you know, as you pointed out, you could do a lot of this work on a, on a MacBook Pro. Mm. Well, the game um, Obsidian got in you know, a great reviews. I remember it being very, you know, 
the critics loved that game, you know, magazines, uh, websites at the time as well. And it, today it's got a massive fan base as well, a really hardcore for it. Um, but some people said the game should have been as popular and acclaimed as missed. Um, but I heard it, it fell short of sales expectations. I mean, what do you think kind of happened there? What kind of went wrong there? Well, a couple of things. Mist hadn't even fallen off much like uh, Dark Side of the Moon or some albums like that that stay, uh, you know, in the top 100 for a while. Mist stayed popular for quite a while. So it didn't really yeah. go away. And then, you know, I think it could be that the cynicism around the rocket science uh, company name and what we were doing uh, meant that we didn't quite get the promotional push that we could have gotten. And, you know, in those days, like if you didn't get on the end cap, you know, you know, in a store, when you walk in, there's the end cap at the end of the aisles where the featured games or, or records or whatever it is you're selling, they're right there and you see them. I think we were fighting to get the kind of attention in the stores and in the media that we wanted. And we wanted the focus to be less on what is rocket science doing now, given what their past is and more just less focus on this game. And I, as I recall, I think we just weren't getting the attention we wanted to get at that time that had to do more with the history of the company. And also uh, a lot of platforms, I'm trying to think, when did Saturn come out? But we were also fighting- 94, I think that was, 94, 95, yeah. Yeah, I think also uh, we were fighting with people that were wanting the the, the attraction to the, the exciting- you know, chase and shoot and find your enemy, doom world, those things were getting a lot of attention too. So between Mist and its popularity and the potential cynicism about the company and all the platforms exploding at the same time, I think we just got a little lost. So how did that affect Rocket Science Games? Because I know that the company cease then in 97 what kind of happened there we 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 went under i mean i recall the game got enough success that we uh we translated it to japanese and german in fact i recalled going to japan a couple of times to supervise that and meanwhile the company was starting to go under we had run out of money uh we're running out of money and weren't making enough clearly off obsidian to keep the company going so uh it was tough, you know, but 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 it was successful enough that we were saying, hey, let's get this out in some other languages. So while the company was sort of uh, on the precipice of their demise, I was deep in porting Obsidian to other languages. And in fact, I, I think I was one of the, you know, 10 people that sort of closed the doors literally on the space that the company was because we just kept going on Obsidian after everything else had sort of gone away. Well, it proves, you know, the passion that you had for the project and uh, obviously the fact that, you know, it wasn't the fault of the game, you know, or the team. It was, you know, a fantastic product, just like you said, that that bad history of the, the company itself, I suppose, the reputation there. Um, but obviously, you know, like I mentioned, the game has got a cult following over the last 25 years or so. And Obsidian's recently been re-released for a new audience on, uh, you know, these new platforms, Steam and Zoom. So mm-hmm. have you been involved in this kind of uh, re-release then? T- tell us a bit about this. Well, basically, I kept my copies of, of Obsidian in Japanese and German. And, uh, and when I heard that they were going to release this, uh, I, I sent these along and said, hey, if you're already porting the English, you could port these other two. And uh, I just helped. And also, I kept a lot of the artwork. 
uh, uh, not a lot, but I kept a, a fair amount of conceptual artwork, storyboards, digital paintings of things that ended up in the game. And so, and I, I've been purging a lot of stuff lately because you do that later in life, but I kept a bunch of that and I scanned it and I got it to them. So whether or not they wanted to offer that to people that, that bought the game or use it on their promotions to just give a people, give people a little peek behind the scenes of, of what the creative side of making the game I just, I, I was glad I kept it all because I loved the game. I loved the team uh, and the kind of artwork we made. And I was glad I hung on to this stuff. And I was thrilled there was anybody that uh, cared uh, and, wanted to, mm. and wanted to show this to a new audience. I think that's awesome as well that you did keep it all because, uh, you know, a game of that depth that had such an incredible team working on it, it is really interesting to kind of, you know, peek behind the curtain and see how it all worked. And also, you know, the fact that the game is now, it's so much more accessible, isn't it, you know, to new audiences. That must be quite satisfying seeing how easy people can get hold of the game now. Yeah, I'm very curious to see how many people want to play it. I can say that my kids, who are 20 and 23, and uh, play much more interactive, exciting uh potentially exciting games where you're you're hunting other players and it's it's really about you mm. shoot and kill and making teams they were like dad this is a slow game like this is puzzle solving and i'm curious to see if this is just going to be a game that appeals to people that knew it already or if there is an audience mm. that's looking because it's kind of fun to do and you can even do it with somebody else sitting next to you and try and solve the puzzles and explore the world uh I'm very curious to see if there will be some interest beyond the people that wanted to play it before uh, or played it in the past and want to play it again. If there's any potential to find a broader audience, even just for this kind of game, because I don't think I don't think Mist makes any more games. Maybe they will, but I don't know how many games of the style even are developed anymore. Yeah, no, uh, Mist has had a few reboots over the years. It was like a VR version of it as well a couple of years ago. But yeah, there's not many, uh, you know, thinking games, I suppose you could call them, you know, these kind of logic, logical puzzles and stuff. So I think there's definitely a, an audience there that if they come across it, would find it interesting for sure. And I think, you know, for people like me that didn't have a powerful enough PC back in the day, it's quite right. nice to have a, you know, simple way of being able to play it now. You know, I can't help but wonder if it had come out during COVID when, you know, in 2021, yeah. when we were all stuck at home with a lot of time to kill. It would have been interesting to see if that had found a broader audience just because people were at home looking for stuff to do. So, I mean, after working on, you know, such a, a passion project that, you know, you re really were into, and then obviously Rocket Science Games closing its doors, um, that must have been obviously pretty heartbreaking for everyone involved in these incredible titles and, you know, you personally as well. What happened next then? What was kind of your journey after that then? How did you kind of keep going in the games industry and pick yourself up again? Well, you know, I really actually, though I stayed working the games industry, I fell back into the video world. I can tell you when we worked on Obsidian and Lodestar, there was a company in San Francisco uh, that was that was a video post-production house called Western Images. And we would go there to work on uh, all the video aspects that we were delivering. So uh, doing color correction and little visual effects. Cause, and, and it was to make the video side of whether we were making ads or promoting the games. And when they heard we were going under, we got a call. My partner and I uh, got a call from uh, Western Images going, hey, we know you've got a great animation team. And we know you're good producers and you've worked here. Would you like to come over here? We need an animation department. 
we're falling behind here because we don't have animators here. And we know that you have good equipment and they like the SGI machines because we had them. And of course, when a company goes under, they sell their equipment very cheap. So they basically called and said, why don't you pick the three or four best animators from your team and pick out all the best equipment because you can, you know, what's in that office and we will hire, you can start a department, we'll hire those animators, we'll buy the gear and you can just come over here. So immediately after rocket science, uh, we went over a place called called Western Images, which is now out of business, and started their animation department. And because we had worked on video games and people uh, knew me and my partner from that, also electronic arts was really exploding in general. Uh, So Western Images, in addition to my team working on commercials and visuals for uh, all kinds of TV ads and things like that, we started getting calls from uh, Electronic Arts uh, saying, hey, do you want to work on the open animation for this game? There was a game called Alice that they wanted, which they wanted a beautiful opening design for. And basically, Western Images was having so much success with the commercial side of things, they weren't that interested in these in these game jobs, which paid pretty well, but not nearly as well as the Super Bowl commercial. So my partner and I decided to leave Western Images and start our own company called Little Beast. And then EA came to us and uh, some of the same animators. And we started doing, we started working on LucasArts games and, uh, and electronic arts games, doing their visuals. You know, sometimes it was just the open close animations that introduced the game and gave the cinematic story behind it. And sometimes it was the animations that went in between the sections of the game that, that gave the, uh, the plot, the, the story side, somewhere to go. And sometimes it was just making the ships and, and things that were in the game. And we would, we would deliver elements, like sometimes 300 elements. So our history in the game world made us good people to work with because we understood what a game need to have in terms of assets. And sometimes they have limited polygons to, Hey, make these simple, but look them good and uh, look good. And because we had that experience, we became a preferable company to go to, to, to make that those sort of assets. And Alice was a really interesting title as well because that was uh, meant to come out um, with a, a film release as well. Uh, yes, America McGee's Alice. Yes, uh, yeah. What was it like, kind of changing styles with that? Um, it was and, fantastic. Uh, trying to fit less of a kind of sci-fi world. It was fantastic. Well, first of all, I always liked the story of Alice, and uh, one of the main animators that we worked with at Little Beast, his name was Zane Rutledge. He loved Alice. And uh, when they came to us and said, hey, can you make an interesting open for a game called Alice that has a total dark side? And they showed us the artwork. We were thrilled that we got to move, that we both got to work on such a, a well-known, you know, title. And, and, and Quince, you know, Alice in Wonderland is big in our culture. And so, and yet they were taking it in a new direction uh, visually and story-wise. So we got to work with uh, American McGee uh, and his producer is a great guy named RJ Berg. They went on to team together afterwards. Uh, it was very exciting for us to work on that. 
and and they really gave us a very long leash in terms of what did we think it needed to look like uh and we worked on the sound design for it and the music it was it was very exciting really fun so that's interesting that you worked on the the music as well because uh it was Marilyn Manson was involved and Nine Inch Nails as well. It was a real kind of a, a dark, dark soundtrack. Yeah, I, I didn't work on it, but but we went back and forth. We, I mean, they made the music, but we would go back and forth with them, sending them stuff in progress so they could get a sense of what it was going to look like and how it was going to move along. So there was a lot of, I always liked working in music anyway, but it was nice to have some back back and forth play between all right, we're making the visuals, you're making the music. We're not just going to deliver this to you and you're going to have to rush through it. We gave we had some back and forth about making sure it all developed so that when we were done, it had a fantastic soundtrack like ready to go. Well, earlier on in the interview, you talked about, you know, separately rendering stuff on video and uh, you know, having a kind of separation between the film stuff and the game stuff. Nowadays there's a a real kind of integration of like digital assets being used in films and then being put into games and stuff. Is it, is it a lot easier and uh, is, is there a lot more kind of work doing CG these days? Well, it's interesting. It's all changing. First of all, the machines have gotten so powerful. And as we know, and people like to say the computer in your iPhone is more powerful than the computer they, that we took to, uh, you know, you know, to go to the moon. So the fact that the powerful computing is so in everybody's reach has changed everything, Uh, both in terms of filmmaking and video game making. I just think it's, you know, it's opened up the world to kind of like in the music biz where anybody can jump in. And, and develop something. And, and, and now, oh, by the way, the, the rendering issue I mentioned, anybody can go online and instantly rent 500 machines and render frames if you need to do it. So I would just say the whole, the whole creative process has gotten much more democratic. Now, as far as the distribution of games, you know, you still need to be a player. Uh, just like, just like the, the, the film biz, you can make a movie but who's going to get it out there and promote it and get it out into the world? There's fewer and fewer companies that kind of own that power. But more and more people can make movies. And I think, uh, not that I follow it that well, but I'm sure that's still happening in the game industry as well. And in terms of uh, more companies can just pop up with an idea and go. And you don't need to have the quite the financial power uh, behind you that we needed to have to start rocket science because – everything's much more powerful just that the technology is much more democratically distributed mm. to people that want to get creative in this world and the whole um, you know the the film world and the game world coming together i think you know the fact that now you know video games are distributed either digitally or on blu-rays you know it's uh, you can have really high quality pretty much as good as movies you know cutscenes in them and stuff yes. as well so yeah, i think you you definitely backed the right horse back in the early 90s getting involved you know with the video side of gaming Yes. And, and um, it's gone off the charts. And also everybody's looking to cross promote. You might as well. I mean, look at how many movies are coming out based on video games. And it's because you've got a built in audience. And because and video games have gotten so, so big that if you can get that audience over to see your movie, even half of them, you could have a pretty successful movie. You know, and that's also why now, I mean, it's going with everything where people, 
you know, now people that make music are also also trying to sell sneakers or have their music featured in a video game. I think there's a lot more crossing over from all the different uh, entertainment genres to try and bring audiences in that otherwise, you know, wouldn't necessarily have gone there. But now, geez, how many people want to see a movie about a video game? Quite a few. Yeah, look at the TV series like The Last of Us and stuff, you know, it's, uh, it seems to be going that way now that they're making shows about games, you know, rather than the other way around. So it's... Uh, right, right. Yeah, really interesting. And um, well, it's, it's been great to hear your, uh, your contribution to the uh, the history of gaming, Matthew, and uh, long may your, your passion continue for, you know, the incredible games that you've worked on and the amazing work that you do. And it's fantastic to see that Obsidian is available for anyone to play really simply on uh, Zoom platform and Steam as well. So I will uh, link up those... Um, links in our show notes so anyone can just click through and uh, check out Obsidian maybe people that didn't get a chance to play it back in the day or just you know like the sound of it from our chat can now hopefully go and uh, see what they think of the game and play it over the weekend hopefully so uh, thank you so much for coming on and reminiscing with us Matt it's been wonderful to talk to you thank you it was great to talk to you and I'm looking forward to seeing how many people want to explore the Obsidian world Mm -hmm.